we are continuing in our series on building for God's kingdom. And before we kind of take a look at the passage for today, so before we put it up on the screens, I want to say a few things uh, about the prophets. Because what we're going to be doing this morning is taking a look at the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, of course, was a prophet of God. And, And one of the things about the prophets, of course, is that, you know what? They weren't always loved. And we don't oftentimes hear about the prophets. We don't oftentimes talk about the prophets, probably for the same reason that the people of Israel didn't really like hearing from the prophets, which is that the prophets were always making people angry. They were always making people somewhat uncomfortable. And most of us don't like to be made angry. There are a few people who I know who like to be angry, but most of us don't like to be angry. Most of us don't like to feel uncomfortable. We just like to just kind of relax and and be with our own folks and not have to worry about anything beyond ourselves. But the thing about a prophet, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, our prophets are people who are helping to build for God's kingdom. What prophets were always doing were saying, this is how things are, but this is how things should be, right? That's what a prophet does. But Here's what you may not realize is that oftentimes the reason why things are as they are is because there's a good deal of people, especially those with power, who like things as they are. And so when you go and you tell someone who has power or who has wealth, hey, you know what? Things shouldn't be like this. You shouldn't be doing this. This is the way God's coming kingdom is going to look. This is the way things should look. Guess what? They aren't going to like you. And the whole, hey, don't shoot the messenger thing didn't typically work all that well for prophets because they didn't like the prophets. So you look at some of the prophets, right? Yeah, the prophets like Elijah, Queen Jezebel uh, was always trying to kill him. You have people like Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who's called, does anyone know what kind of prophet he's called? The crying or the weeping prophet. And a part of the reason why he's called that is because he was oftentimes crying and whining to God about why in the world he had to be the one to tell these people that things needed to change. Because it's no fun. Amos, Amos, I call him the crafty prophet. Because one of the things that Amos did is when he was supposed to go in and kind of prophesy against a particular town, he, he began by prophesying against, I think it is six other groups which people usually like that. I mean, we do like it when other groups are prophesied against, that they're not living in the right way. Until then, finally, in a sneaky way, he then brings up their own town and what they're doing wrong. And then, not surprisingly, even though it was a nice try, Amos, he got ridden out on the rails as well. Or, 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 or you know, you have all of these folks who are doing all these things. Oh, yeah, I remember. There's one more, Zechariah. And you know what happened to Zechariah? Well, he simply got stoned to death. And he was just killed. My point, if it's not clear, is that we don't oftentimes like hearing from people who are pointing out the things that we are doing wrong and how things should be. And especially those of us who have power or wealth and are comfortable. And those are the ones to whom the prophets were usually speaking. And so we have Isaiah 
And Isaiah, it's a little contentious. There are people who are deba- somewhat debated on this, but most think that Isaiah, especially in the first part that we're going to be talking about this morning, was talking to the country, of, to, to, the, to the kingdom of Judah, part of kind of larger Israel, and that they were in a good place. They were comfy, they were cozy. Everything was wonderful on the surface for them. And then Isaiah makes his way on to the scene. And I'm going to read to us. I was debating whether to do what we usually do, the NRSV or the message. There are times when I just like the message. I would invite you. It's going to be 20 verses. Otherwise, I would read both of them. But then, by then at that point, we would be out of time. So I'm just going to read to you from the message version because I really kind of like that one just slightly more. Here's what Isaiah says. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw regarding Judah and Jerusalem during the times of the kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Heaven and earth, you're the jury. Listen to God's case. I had children and raised them well, and they turned on me. The ox knows who's boss. The mule knows the hand that feeds him, but not Israel. My people don't know up from down. Shame. Misguided God dropouts. Staggering under their guilt baggage. Gang of miscreants. Band of vandals. My people have walked out on me. Their God turned their backs on the holy of Israel. Walked off and never looked back. Why bother even trying to do anything with you when you just keep to your bullheaded ways? You keep beating your heads against brick walls. Everything within you protests against you. From the bottom of your feet to the top of your head, nothing's working out. Wounds and bruises and running sores, untended, unwashed, unbandaged. Your country is laid waste. Your cities burned down. Your land is destroyed by outsiders while you watch reduced to rubble by barbarians. Daughter Zion is deserted like a tumble-down shack on a dead-end street, like a tar paper shanty on the wrong side of the tracks, like a sinking ship abandoned by the rats. If God of the angel armies hadn't left us a few survivors, we'd be as desolate as Sodom, doomed just like Gomorrah. Listen to my message, you Sodom school teachers. Receive God's revelation, you Gomorrah school people. Why this frenzy of sacrifices, God's asking? Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams and plump grain-fed calves? Don't you think I'll have had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs, and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. It is interesting that Eugene Peterson, who did this, was a Presbyterian pastor, by the way. (laughs) Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. 
No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doing so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. Come, sit down. Let's argue this out. This is God's message. If your sins are blood red, they'll be snow white. If they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. If you'll willingly obey, you'll feast like kings. But if you're willful and stubborn, you'll die like dogs. That's right. God says so. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, be with us in this time. May your words be heard. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. So as you can tell, this is not really a happy-go-lucky sermon that Isaiah is preaching to these folks. This is not one of those times when you would come and you would hear it and you would get a lot of amens. Or they wouldn't walk out and be like, hey, Izzy, great job today. Loved it. Really loved it. That's not what Isaiah was looking for. And it's easy, again, for most of us to think, I say this frequently at at inquirer's classes when I briefly mention the prophets, it's easy for us to think that the prophets are just angry. They're just mad. They don't like the people to whom they are preaching. But I think that actually it's, it's not that. In fact, it seems to me that in Isaiah, we actually catch a glimpse of why it is that God so often wants to use the prophets. Of why it is that so often God speaks like this. And it's because he loves them. In fact, you see this. It says, uh, it says in the NRSV, I had children, God says, and they turned on me. In other words, God is not just simply mad. What God is, is he is heartbroken. He is sad that these people who were his children have walked out on him. And it is critical that we understand that in context because otherwise we begin to just have the sense of God's just this angry person who's just not happy with us. And we forget that first and foremost, God is a parent who loves his children and his desire is for his children to love him back and to care for others. One of the most important things to see is that not only, as we will see in a moment, not only does God care for the neglected, not only does he love the down and out, but God loves the neglecter as well. That God loves those who are not caring for the down and out. God loves those who perhaps can think of little other than themselves. And that is why God so often tries to speak in such loud language in order to catch their attention. Someone has pointed out that this passage clearly, again, reveals to us that God is not kind of detached or dispassionate. And I like that because for two reasons. One is, is that we usually, we, we like it that God is not detached or dispassionate. We want God to care about us. But there are also times, are there not, 
when we kind of wish that God would be a little bit more detached, less dispassionate, when God would just let us do what we want to do. Weren't there times when you were growing up and you wish your parent would just leave you alone? We're already noticing that with our children, and they're not even teenagers yet. There's already a sense at times that they would much prefer us not to be all up in their business. But a part of our role, because we love them too much, is to never allow them to just do whatever they want to do, right? Is to always be engaged and to always have a heart. And as a parent knows, at no point even, and I've seen this when children are in their 40s or 50s or 60s even, even then, you still care and love them. There is still this great attachment and you care for them greatly. So first, what we need to understand is that God does these things. He says these things out of, not out of anger or hatred, but out of a deep love for us. So what is it that God is so upset about when it comes to the people of Judah? Well, it seems that what he is most upset about is that there seems to be this separation, this dichotomy between their worship and how they're actually living their lives when they're not worshiping. Now, this is a little bit similar to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago when it comes to worship. You may recall, if you were here, that we looked at the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, there's this great vision, and it's this great vision of worship. And it's clear that everyone is excited. They're passionate about their worship. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And one of the questions that we asked is, why do we at times struggle with having passionate worship, with, with worshiping God with great joy, with vim and vigor? And that oftentimes when it comes to that question, our answer would be, well, we wrestle with it because the sermon stunk. That's why. We wrestle with it because the music was no good. We wrestle with it because the people around us, they weren't very nice to us. We wrestle with it because we don't really like this sanctuary. It's not gothic. It doesn't like cause our hearts to soar. And what I suggested on that day is that a part of the reason why John was able to see a vision of great, passionate worship is because of this reality, that he was someone who worshipped all the time. And that we cannot expect all through the week to worship wealth, to worship our own success, to worship our children, and then all of a sudden show up on Sunday morning and be able to just worship God like nobody's business. That if you want to come in on a Sunday morning and begin to worship with great joy, then the way for that to happen is not to wait for a great sermon because you might be waiting for a long time. It is to decide that you are going to come and you are going to come into the place after you have been worshiping six days of the week and that will transform your Sunday morning worship. No question about it. And so we began to touch on the fact that worship is something that has to happen all through the week. But here, God seems to be mocking their worship. In this passage, God is mocking their sacrifices. He's mocking their praise. And there have been those in the past who have said, well, this is a clear sign that worship is not all that important because God seems to be mocking it right here. But that's a bad way to understand it. What God instead is doing is he is saying, you cannot worship 
on whatever day it may be or whatever moment and then live your life however you want to live it and just think that I am going to be happy with that. That you have to be caring for others, loving your neighbor. Yes, love God. But also, as Jesus said, love your neighbor. That you have to have a passion, not just about worshiping God, but about caring for others, especially those who are powerless or who are struggling. And see, this is a tension that the vast majority of folks wrestle with. Remember, the very first Sunday that we brought up this series, one of the things I pointed out, was that if we want to be healthy in how we live out our faith, that we have to live with oftentimes with a sense of tension. And most of us and most churches and most denominations tend to focus on one pole or another for many different subjects. For this subject, there are those who love to worship and it's all about piety. It's all about personal relationship with Jesus Christ and that that's really what it's all about. And they focus on that. They don't spend that much time thinking about their neighbor, thinking about others. They think about God and Jesus. And this is critical. This is what's most important. And then on the other side, of course, you have those who who say, no, no, no. It's all about justice. It's all about caring for others. That's what it's really about. Oh, that whole pious talk about relationship with Jesus. That just feels kind of weird and awkward. and, and, And no, no, no. It's all about doing what we can to settle injustices. That's what we are supposed to be about. And that we tend, and I can point out to you, individuals or churches or denominations that tend to focus really on one or the other. That's where we're comfortable. But what God calls us to is to hold those two things together. And if we cannot, then God is not pleased. There is in this passage, one of, this was pointed out by somebody else, but it is incredibly true, probably one of the most disturbing images in all, not yet, in all of Scripture. Did any of you guys read all that? Good. It is incredibly, to me at least, it is incredibly disturbing. In fact, I actually tried to find an image of it online just quickly but I could not find one that really kind of did justice I have a feeling maybe nobody has done an image of this yet I wasn't even sure if I saw it that I would actually show it because I because it would be weird and disturbing but I want you to to hear this to see this here it is when you stretch out your hands in prayer is what this is or praise I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers I will not listen your hands are full of blood When you stretch out your hands praising God I will hide my eyes from you and even though you make many prayers I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Can you imagine that image? We all gather on a Sunday morning. We're all dressed to the nines. Some of us dressed to the nines. We're singing songs. We're praying. Imagine if all of a sudden you could put on the glasses of God and you began to see as you looked out at others and more importantly, perhaps even yourself, 
and you realized that your hands, now your clothes, are speckled with blood. Why? Because God says, you come in, you worship so well, you bring the sacrifices, but you are not caring for those who are struggling. You are not caring for those who are without food. You are not caring for those who are without home. You are not caring for those who are without a parent. You are not caring for the immigrant, for the foreigner in your midst. And because of that, I care not how beautiful your worship is because there is blood on your hands. That should make us slightly uncomfortable. That should make especially us uncomfortable. For this reason, let me remind you. Most of the New Testament, written to the persecuted, to those who are struggling, to the imprisoned, to those fleeing from the powerful. The prophets, written to the comfortable, to the wealthy, to those with power. Which one is most of us? That's an amen. Which one is most of us? I've struggled as I've tried to think through this week. How do we bring up this issue of justice and the way things should be? In a way that doesn't just make people angry or defensive or saying, spending the whole time just saying, well, that's not me. Nope, not me at all. No power here. The people behind that gated community, they have power. We don't have that. And I've tried to figure out a thousand different ways to help us to see that that is us. And I realize now at the end of the day, I just got to say it. This is speaking to almost all of us. And we can spend tons of energy and time getting defensive about that and saying, no, 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 it's not. No, 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 that's the other people. But I am here to tell the vast majority of us, and let me, let me make sure that you see, I am included in this. That most of us have much more power than those in the rest of our city or the rest of our state, the rest of our country, and especially the rest of our world. And we can either hide from that or not think about it. But if we do either of those things, then there is great danger that when we come together on Sunday morning, we are praising God with bloodied hands. And I don't want any of us, myself included, to worship God with bloodied hands. But I have to admit there have been times, make no mistake about it, when I have. And I say that not to try to make us feel guilty or shame because to me, quite frankly, those aren't very helpful feelings. 
I do it rather to say that we have to wake up at times and be made uncomfortable. And one of the things that wealth does a great job of or power does a great job of is pushing us towards thinking only about our own comfort. There's no, that's just, that's just the reality. We want to be pushed towards comfort. And one of the great ways that it does that is by distancing us from those who are struggling. From those to whom injustices may be occurring. The more wealth you have, the more power you have, the more detached we are from those to whom God is always talking about. The orphan, the widow, the homeless, the immigrant, the refugee. The powerless. Which means that one of the things that we have to do as a church is that we have to always be encouraging one another to never grow so comfortable that we then begin to forget others. And I am simply here to say this, that it is very natural for all of us to long more for our own comfort than we do for the justice of others. It is natural for all of us to long more for our own comfort and for the comfort of our own children than it is for actual justice for others. That's just a natural tendency. And it's why the prophets come in and yell and scream and give us images of bloodied, worshiping hands to simply wake us up. Let me say it again, to wake us up to this reality. But I also want you to know this. We have incredible opportunity. One of the things I love about this book, you should read it sometime if you haven't, called When Helping Hurts. It's this great book. And there's this wonderful quote in it. I I want you to hear this because I want you to hear this. It says, the claim here is not that the poor are inherently more righteous or sanctified than the rich. There is no place in the Bible that indicates that poverty is a desirable state or that material things are evil. In fact, I want you to hear this. Wealth is viewed as a gift from God. The point is simply that for his own glory, God has chosen to reveal his kingdom in the place where the world and all of its pride would least expect it among the foolish, the weak, the lowly, and the despised. There's two things I want us to think about. One is this. When it comes to justice, a part of the reason why we care for those who are struggling, for those who who are without, is simply for this. Because so often, that's where you will find Jesus. I think Pastor Scott brought that up last week with someone in the food pantry. He said whenever she is there and working, what she oftentimes notices, of course, is that she sees Jesus there. And then also, Because we have wealth and power, we have opportunity for those who are awake to help bring justice to this community, to this state, and to this world. We have that opportunity, but it will always be pushing against the headwind that says, no, 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 have more comfort. Against our coworkers who say it's all about comfort. Against our neighbors who say, no, 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 it's all about taking that next vacation, about buying that bigger house or that nicer car. And what the prophet and what God is always saying is, wait, what about justice? What about those who are being left behind? We can never.
never forget about them because I am here to tell you, while you can ignore me, you cannot ignore God. And it is no fun to worship with bloodied hands. Always over that phrase. So what do we need to do? Look, I don't have time to kind of talk through all the different things that we might be able to do. But I do want us to begin to ask more specific questions. One of the most important things that we can do, that again, our tendency will be not to do, is to actually actively engage with those people to whom Isaiah and God are trying to point to to the ones who are struggling, to the ones who are defenseless, to the ones who are powerless. And one of the things that that means that we have to do is we have to be more intentional about that. If you live next to people who are defenseless and powerless, it's very easy to do that. But if you don't, it takes more work. And we have to be intentional about that. I I was thinking about this. This This is the most ridiculous example But for those of us who are in Zionsville, perhaps we understand. A year or so ago, or maybe longer than that, maybe a couple years ago now, remember when the marsh at Boone Village shut down? And the marsh, where am I? Down here at 106? It was a nightmare. We had to go all the way to Meyer or to Target, which is never good because whenever someone goes grocery shopping at Target, they always seem to pick out clothes and other things than just groceries. And I thought, this is a nightmare. How are we, how are we supposed to live like this? And as I was thinking about that, I was just remembering hearing things about food deserts in the inner city with people who don't have vehicles to be able to drive an extra mile or two. And all of a sudden I thought, well, man, I don't really think about that that much. I hear about it, but I don't, I'm not concerned. Or I was talking to someone just a couple months ago, and he was concerned because he had a physical issue, and he didn't have insurance. And I want you to know that as he was having that conversation, I was both grieving for him, and I felt really awkward Because you know what I have never worried about? Not one time. My own insurance. Always have it. Lots of safeguards. No worries. A few weeks ago, whenever we had the homeless here, I was having this conversation with this one of the homeless women. It was a good conversation. We were in the gym. She had this little son. He was running around. And I thought, this guy, this little guy, he's sleeping at a church. And he's got to get up at five something in the morning. And I'm so glad that we do this. But when I tucked my children later on that night into their beds... I was not nearly as comfortable as I had been the night before. Because I realized, why why can't he have a bed? 
in a house or an apartment or someplace. And yet every day he's off or every week he's off someplace different. I thought back to, to an incident that happened way back in high school. When me and a buddy, a, an African-American friend of mine named Eldred, we were at this grocery store and we were standing out. It was dark. It was one of the weirdest things. And we stood out there and all of a sudden this bottle came flying over our head, this glass bottle, and it smashed in the wall behind us. And then, and then the, the, the shards just came raining down behind us. Now, they didn't yell anything. Maybe it was against me. But I have a sneaking suspicion it wasn't. And I know for sure that I don't have to live life worried about that kind of thing. And it made me uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that I still have, I, I'm always thinking about it. Or what about immigrants? I know I'm going to bring up a Mexican immigrant. And I know as soon as I do, people say, oh, there he goes, getting political. And I thought to myself, well, maybe I could wait until, until the political maelstrom around immigration dies down. And I realized I will be retired before that happens. But I reached out to an immigrant from Mexico that I know. But I realized I haven't actually asked him his story at all. And just to hear from him. To hear how, 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 how many nights when he first came here many years ago, how he would cry at night quietly to himself. Because he knew he was an outsider and he thought he would never be welcomed. You know what? I have no idea what that is like. None. And I don't have to. Because I have enough money and enough power to be able to live my life detached from all of those things if I want to. There's just one problem. I don't want bloody hands. And I know that God has called us to more. And I don't know what that means for you, and I don't think that we can all convene and we're all going to come around the same political agreement on what we need to do about this or that. But what I do know is that the church cannot be quiet and we cannot be content to just be comfortable. So my simple, very small, anticlimactic homework lesson for all of you is this. And the next week or two, it is to find somebody who is not like you and does not have the power, let's get over it, that you have. It can be an immigrant. It can be a refugee. It can be someone who's in foster care. It can be, it doesn't matter, a homeless person. I don't care, someone who is black. It can be whomever else you want it to be. It doesn't matter. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen. And as you hear their story, I want you to ask, where do I see Jesus in this story? Where do I see injustice? Where do I see any role that I may play in that? And then I want us to confess 
And I want us to continue to say, what else might we do? For some of you, it means growing closer to that person. For others, it may be working with other organizations, working with our food pantry, working with Straight Up, working with the Christian Legal Clinic. I don't know what it is. For others, it may be engaging in more structural. Maybe it is more political kinds of things for you. But whatever it may be, we can never be content because of our comfort. Because otherwise, we will gather every Sunday morning looking beautiful to everyone. And God will be seeing us with bloodied hands. And if we want to build for God's kingdom, then we have to discern what that means, not just for us, but for all of us especially those without power. May it be so. Amen? Let's pray. God, we don't always know exactly what it is that you call us to, but we do know that you call us. It is easy for us to grow defensive. It is easy for us to just feel guilt or shame. That's not what you call us to. You have blessed the much, many, many of us greatly. May we both see that for the gift that it is and may it encourage us to never grow so comfortable that we forget those who are without. Give us hands that are dirty for our engagement with others, not hands that are bloodied, for our detachment from them. And may we one by one, day by day, grow closer to that kingdom that you have envisioned for all of us. And may they and may we never be the same. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.